All right, guys, welcome back to the Adam Peter Fitness Podcast. Today on the show, I have none other than Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, who is the founder of Barbell Medicine, um, where they bring modern medicine, modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. How'd I do? That was good, man. I was, uh, you know, it took me a while to come up with a little phrase for my podcast, right? And then now that I do it every time, it's like, it's automatic. I can almost not, like if I say, barbell medicine podcast. I, I like have to stop myself from immediately going into that, but you, yeah, pretty good, man. I feel like that was, uh, we could, we could sample that. Hey, sweet. Well, yeah. you know, you, well, you do have my, my Instagram ads. So now you can uh, hire me for my uh, services. But, your um, voice over, Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to first off talk about, about that because I think that that's a really, really important, um, slow, like, a I guess saying, uh, catchphrase because, um, in my opinion, I think that there's a lot in common with you know, overall like physical therapy, modern medicine in terms of like rehabilitative practices with strength and conditioning um, in terms of, yep. you know, I, I think that personally, like something that I know that most PT schools have is they don't have really a strength and conditioning sector. Um, athletic training doesn't really have it. A lot of it is about, you know, as much as, you know, we know about the, you know, there's not just the biomedical model. There's also the biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. Still the framework of a lot of this, of a lot of uh, the ed- education seems to be around the biomedical model, since that's what, you know, most people base their practices off of. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I want to ask you about your opinions. Steffi, Steffi Cohen, I know that Charlie, um, also believe that, um, Hey, you know, more physical therapists, especially should be strength and conditioning specialists too. Like they should understand how to lift weights. Um, what, like, what, what's your opinion on all that? Yeah, no, I think, I think you've summarized the, one of the problems straight away in that the education for professionals that we are basically, uh, saying are the experts in exercise. Uh, particularly from a, a, you know, when you're going from these rehabilitative setting, um, you know, post-injury, post-op, post, you know, sports injury, whatever, back to normal function or back to sport, those people are being charged with, Hey, you're the subject matter expert in strength conditioning. So, you know, you know, the best practices, but the, the issue is, is I believe, uh, an education problem. And, and it probably doesn't, it, it doesn't stem from like, you know, intelligence, and lack of intelligence, people in, in physical therapy school and other professional programs are obviously very intelligent, good work ethic, because how, how else do you get there? Right. But the, the problem is there's a limited amount of time to teach students what they need to know to go out into the world, get a job and function in their current role. And so it's kind of, it's the same thing with nutrition is in medical school, right? It's like, we just don't have enough extra time, not extra time. We just don't have enough curriculum time, um, to really, add that on to what we're currently teaching. And so you could go back and forth about, well, maybe something needs to be cut. Maybe we don't need to learn all this immunology stuff, you know, of toll-like receptors and all these very, this minutia, um, unless it's clinically relevant, or if you decide to specialize and instead you replace that with nutrition, that, that'd be a, in medical school. In PT school, I have a very limited sort of idea of what the entire curricula looks like. I was charged with teaching and helping to teach their anatomy and neuroanatomy uh, courses uh, when I was doing my master's program at St. Louis University School of Medicine. So I worked with their physical therapy, athletic trainer, and physician assistant program. I was kind of uh, in charge of that. So I don't really know the extent of all of the curriculum, but so I don't know what you would replace. However, uh, I do think because they 
the role of a physical therapist does involve so much exercise programming that you should have some, uh, 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 a more extensive uh, education in exercise programming, which would include, you know, obviously strength conditioning instead of, and not just aerobic training and not just rehabilitative sort of stuff, because most people are going to be the, the, especially that are non-athletes are going to be not meeting the physical activity guidelines anyway, when they come into a PT clinic, they just had an injury, maybe had a surgery or, you know, uh, otherwise are in pain and their doctor referred them to PT. Okay. So now they're seeing the physical therapist. So there's one kind of phase where you're getting back to our, where were you at before? That's like this initial phase, where were you at before? And then, well, how do I get you back to sport or how do I get you to reduce the risk of injury in the future? How do I get you uh, into a level of improved health? Well, you're going to need additional exercise. And so again, the physical therapists by and large are being held uh, to a higher standard than their training. They're being held to the standard where they are the subject matter experts in uh, exercise programming and exercise prescription. And I, I don't know that it's fair. <laughs> and, and, and on the other side, I, I actually don't know that physical therapists are saying, hey, we don't want this responsibility. That's not the impression that I get. Um, but I do think that the, in general, the field is lacking um, sort of formalized training in most education programs, unless somebody has a formal, an interest in it, a personal interest, like they're a physical therapist and they happen to be a powerlifter or Olympic weightlifter, or they're really into CrossFit. And so kind of go down this rabbit hole of exercise programming, exercise prescription, uh, or they were formerly a coach. And even then, you know, it's kind of like, all right, well, it'd be, you, you would think that there would be better if there was a formalized curriculum where we talked about the physical activity guidelines, why those are there? How do you get somebody moving towards those? And then from there, you would build upon this in layers. All right. How do you, we're talking about performance mode, specific performance. So for a strength athlete, for a track and field athlete, for a, uh, you know, aerobic, uh, sport athlete or endurance athlete rather. And, um, so yeah, I'm in agreement with Steffi and, and, and Charlie. Um, obviously we we're all biased because we're like, yeah, we like to lift weights. And so other people should like to lift weights too. But I, but I think even if you reduce the, the recommendation to resistance training down to just for health promotion purposes, again, you have this opportunity to counsel folks, give them resources, tools, skills that they can take out into the world and improve their health. Uh, right now, the data says the number needed to treat for getting somebody who was previously insufficiently active so not meeting even the aerobic part of the guidelines uh, to meeting all of the guidelines is 12. So you got to get see 12 patients to get one of them to stick with exercise for a year or more. And it's like, well, how many, how many patients does a PT see in a day? And so, so from like a public health standpoint, you would say, Hey, if we could get these folks feeling more comfortable in recommending exercise that meets or exceeds the physical activity guidelines improve their behavioral change counseling techniques. So they could, you know, rattle this off in the allotted time that they have to spend with these patients. Um, you could, you would likely see a public health benefit. And then the, the next level for that would be for athletes. Okay, cool. We, we did this sort of short-term, very modified activity sort of schedule to get you back to sort of normal quote unquote function. Uh, well, how do we get you back to sport? How do we improve your performance in sport? Dead and, and go ahead. Sorry. Lots of, lots of dead bugs. <laughs> oh, right. Right. And it's like, it's, so people are like, yo, you hate dead bugs. You hate foam roll. You hate, you know, whatever. And it's like, I don't hate any of this stuff. There's a time and a place for 
mostly anything provided, but you know, it, it depends why you're doing it, why the person thinks they're, they're doing it and sort of what the, what the narrative that you're building with your sort of prescription. And so I think you can do it in a way that's productive for long-term success. And there's a way that you can do it where it almost hamstrings people because they think they're broken. And like, if they don't do these, that one weird trick, dead bugs in this case, you know, uh, I've got a prehab. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, I don't know that that's helpful. And then further, like, well, how are you moving them back towards sport or improved performance and reducing the risk of injury? There's got to be some actual strength conditioning going on. And so if the PT is going to, a particular physical therapist is going to absolve themselves of any responsibility of like actual strength conditioning, that is fine. But that needs to be the expectation set very early on, meaning that, okay, we're going to get you back to a point where you can participate in a relatively unrestricted strength conditioning program. And then you're going to see the strength conditioning, strength conditioning specialist we have in-house at your school, at your, you know, whatever, but that's not how this is going, right? How it's going is you see your primary care doctor and they say, uh, well, let's send you to PT. You see the PT for whatever, however many sessions that your insurance company is going to cover. And then you're back out into the world. And it's like, so there are problems, there's systemic problems, right? And so I don't think we should blame physical therapists for this. I don't think we should blame, um, you know, strength conditioning coaches or physicians. I just think we have to understand the system that we're operating in. And then how do we, what's the quality improvement project? Like what can we do to, to try to improve outcomes? And I think education of the professional is likely a good place to start. I feel the same way about physicians. I don't think that every physician needs to be a power lifter. I don't think that every physical therapist needs to be a power lifter, but they do need to be familiar with the current guidelines for physical activity, why they're being recommended. So they have that sort of underlying fund of knowledge and then how to counsel people on how to get there. Because again, there's a huge potential for public health improvement there. And then if they want to participate in this performance thing for athletes, that that's gotta be either an elective or it's gotta be a fellowship or some sort of additional training because you're not gonna learn that in school. You, you just won't, just, I mean, it's just like, you know, you take the CSCS or uh, you even go on through the NSCA pathway to the CSCC, or you go to the ACSM, their HFS and whatever, or NASM, they've got a bunch of different, you know, um, certifications you can get. That's not gonna teach you how to be a performance coach. You're going to have to get the certification. You're going to have to work with people, ideally under somebody who's actually, you know, knows, knows what they're doing. And you're going to learn as you go. In addition to critically appraising the research that comes out relative to your, what you're doing. So anyway, that's a long way of saying, I do agree with Charlie and Steffi, but I, I don't know that I want to point the finger at the, the people in their, their roles. I think it's just a systemic problem. And to the extent we can modify, uh, you know, folks, folks training, like their education or otherwise give them additional resources. And that was one of the big things with barbell medicine. Like, why do we exist? And it's like, well, we have medical professionals on the one side who need to learn this stuff. Right. And if it's just from a public health standpoint, you know, your journey stops after learning the physical activity guidelines, why they exist and how to do the behavioral change counseling thing. Uh, if you have a personal interest in this stuff and you want to learn how to program for higher levels of performance or, you know, certain outcomes, whether it's hypertrophy, strength, cardiorespiratory fitness, well, we can take that further. And on the flip side of that, we have fitness professionals who need to know about med medical conditions. 95% uh, of the world's population, adult, adult population in the world has at least one medical condition, right? And so if you are a personal trainer or a strength coach or whatever, it is highly likely 
that most of your existing clientele has some either overt medical issue that you need to be aware of, uh, or they're at high risk or elevated risk for uh, a medical condition. And to the extent that you can modify their trajectory, that's great from a public health standpoint. If they already have an existing disease, you can help them get better, uh, reduce their need for medications. Although sometimes medications are necessary and can be very useful. Um, and so again, the idea is giving each side what they don't have. The fitness folks have this, these, these exercise expert, the exercise expertise, but they don't have the medical expertise. So like, how do we, what, how can we shore that up? The medical professionals have the medical expertise, but they don't have the fitness expertise, the exercise expertise. How do we shore that up and bring everybody together? And again, if you want to go further down this rabbit hole, we're happy to take you there, but most for most professionals on the fitness side of the medical side, they don't need to know all the stuff that we do, right? That's very specialized knowledge. And like, I'm happy to like do an e-course on, on some very in the weeds type stuff. But um, obviously I don't think that everybody needs to know that. Yeah. I think that um, what, what, like, I really appreciate all your input on that. I think it's really, really valuable. Um, I think that something uh, that would just be, be good is just understanding like, there's a reason why medicine has specialties and I think we can recognize, um, you know, exercise specialists or something like that. And like, maybe like have that be more instead of just like, you know, how it currently is with just a cardiac wing being uh, that they have being that be like the main area of the hospital that is specializing. Maybe we we incorporate some more um, specialists with not just cardio, but with musculoskeletal system as it pertains to exercise and, and education around that, because, you know, I do agree with you, um, you know, with, you know, with my education as an athletic trainer, a lot of it is just getting them back to function and getting them to have some sort of uh, hopefully self-efficacy if the, uh, if the school is, is actually teaching that the importance of that um, and not just saying, well, come back in, like, you know, in the case of chiropractors and like, I'll crack your back like every week for two times a week and you need that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't help with, with outcomes, you know, maybe potentially expanding um, the hospitals and s- sectors or maybe having more uh, outpatient clinics that are a little bit more specialized with that, uh, you know, in terms of giving people options besides, you know, hey, my insurance is going to pay for these this many physical therapy s- s- sessions um, or whatever. Uh, and then what do after that? It's like, but they don't know what to do because they haven't had like probably that self-efficacy in, mm-hmm. like, in them. And then two, um, generally the, there's just, they just don't know where to go. There's no, there's literally no direction. And if you, yeah. if you go out into the fitness industry, you know, Lane Norton talks about this all the time. It's like people getting into health and fitness. They're just like, they don't know better. They're just trying to do something. And mm-hmm. so, like, you know, they'll get preyed on by, you know, people who say, Hey, carbs are bad. Carbs make you fat. Um, mm-hmm. all this stuff because people like reductionist thinking it simplifies things. Um, whereas, whereas, you know, it depends is literally the answer for most of this stuff. And that was a lot of what your answer was. It's like, well, it depends on X, Y, Z and blah, 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 blah. And people hate that. And, yeah. um, I think that sometimes, you know, I think if like we can give people, um, more of a life, um, a jacket and a, a, like a boat to like actually go to after they have an, an injury or whatever, uh, especially for, I think, and I think it's less of an issue with, with athletes because athletes are going to be like, like, I want to get back to my sport. Like I want to do this so mad. It's, it's, it's like, it's like I, that's what I did it. It's an identity thing. But then you have somebody who's just, they never were an athlete their whole entire life. They get hurt. Like in the case of my, my dad, um, he, um, was skiing last year and he got hit by some dude on like opening day pretty hard. And, uh, he 
lacerated his spleen and uh, broke uh, four of his uh, thoracic uh, of his costal ribs. Um, you know, it was really, you know, he was basically counseled, obviously full rest until that heals, but like he wasn't told for one, like you should probably be eating more protein by the doctors or like the dietitian and like recovery or, you know, Hey, maybe this is what we should do. And maybe some overhead movements might be helpful with, you know, with, you know, and with, you know, with, with like the, the, um, with like the, your, your race muscles and all this, this stuff, like he didn't know. And so like, you know, I was like, well, this is medical advice, but dad, here's a program you should probably run. It'll probably get you healthy. And, you know, now he's back to full function again, but yeah, do. Yeah. People are going to need obviously different things. You know, there people are coming into this at different entry points. So your, your dad, for example, probably would have benefited from just very basic advice. Like, Hey, you should be exercising. You should be eating a high protein, high fiber diet. Like again, no surprise here. Right. Here are examples of a high protein, high fiber diet, for example. And then as far as your restrictions for exercise, you have none, or you have these until this certain point, uh, you know, just giving somebody, um, the freedom, you know, to, to go do the thing rather than, yeah, because they're usually people who are otherwise active. Um, if they do sustain a severe injury, you know, many, much of the time they'll be almost like afraid, like, can I do this rather than like, you know, assuming that everything's going to be fine. Um, on the other hand, you know, many people, particularly those who are not active previously, they need a more rudimentary sort of resources. Like, what would have, what my ideal situation would be. They're in the the primary care clinic. They're in, they're seeing their, you know, their, their primary care physician. And they're like, Hey, you, I, I know, and you know that you would benefit from exercise. No surprise. <laughs> Nobody is surprised when you say, Hey, you know, exercise is good for you. Like everybody knows that. And so you, the behavioral change counseling stuff is more about identifying, like, what are the barriers? Like, how come you're not exercising right now? What can we do? Is it a resource thing? you know, do you need just more straight information on like how to, or is it an access thing? Do you not have access? Uh, is this, you know, what, what is the rub? Like where, what's the, what's the sticking point. And so ideally what you would do is kind of address that in the clinic and then say, great. So we have established this sort of entry point. What I'd like you to do is go down the hall to, uh, Adam, he's in the gym, he's in our uh, clinics gym and you're going to see him for, you know, an hour or whatever, you know, and, uh, he's going to take you through your initial session on like the exercises that we think you should do, or that you want to do, and kind of give you again, more skills and, and tools and resources to get somebody on that path. Right. Like, so how do we get you on the path? And then still other folks are going to need even more sort of, uh, uh, rudimentary sort of resources. Like, Hey, it's, it's okay to exercise. Like, even if you have pain, pain doesn't necessarily correlate with harm. And like, we actually think this is going to improve your function long-term and this, that, and the other. So it really, it really just depends. Um, like you said, that's kind of the answer here. And I think the, the issues that we have surrounding our current sort of recommendations regarding exercise, what actually happens is that people either run out of time they're not aware of the current recommendations or they have this sort of uh, uh, fundamental sort of block where they don't feel comfortable recommending stuff like resistance training without restrictions, right? It would be very rare if your physician was like, Hey, I want you to lift weights a couple of times a week, hit all the major muscle groups. So if you can see it, you should hit it uh, at a level that feels pretty uncomfortable. You should feel pretty, you know, winded and, and tired from doing the effort each time rather than yeah. just yeah. walk more. 
Yeah, because of all, like you know, it's like again, and like like the point, like in the, uh, this is a, this is a massive like rabbit hole that like sure, yeah, down and, down and down. But like you know, last thing I'll say is a whole issue of like underloading for like forever. Oh and yeah, sort of like linear periodization, like mm-hmm. like it's like basic stuff that like we should be teaching in school. In my opinion, you know, like yeah. You know, it was like, you know, and like a basic example of that for, you know, people that may not be familiar with what that means. Basically, lots of um, therapy programs are extremely underloaded. That's why, you know, Dr. Feigenbaum and I just talked about the dead, dead bug thing. Uh, dead bugs are great, you know, if like, you know, you literally can't squat the barbell. But, you know, they have a great, uh, Barbell Best has a great uh, article on like, you know, how to return to the training from an, from an injury, you know, establish that entry point. Maybe that's just bodyweight squats. Mm-hmm that's that, that that's awesome maybe it's pin squats to 45 de- de- degrees of you know knee flexion like or knee, yeah. like who knows um and then just going from there um and you know just like last and then you know basically like you, if you're if you just do dead bugs for a while like that's great but it's just like the same thing with progressive overload like you're like which we which we'll talk about later uh, uh <laughs> like you gotta somehow like as you get stronger as your body can keep abilities abilities approved you should probably have the stimulus to match that and to help you know trigger further adaptation yeah i think the way i like to frame it is that wherever your entry point is and whether this is coming back from an injury or starting exercise or whatever the exercise selection should be something that you can do okay and and within an injury sort of framework, you're thinking, what has the greatest sort of threat to you that you're still able to currently tolerate? So for example, if you have low back pain, but you can still squat with the bar on your back to parallel or below parallel, well, I think you should start it there. Now you may have to do a tempo squat. It may be high bar and not low bar. It may be for higher reps instead of lower reps. But the idea is that your entry point should be as far advanced as you can take it particularly if you have aspirations to get back to a certain point. If you're a powerlifter, for example, you're going to want to get to a point where you can squat heavyweights below parallel. If you're a general fitness enthusiast, I think that, you know, there's less sort of impetus towards picking a specific exercise, but still uh, you should be choosing an exercise um, that is probably the most difficult version that you can kind of stomach. so what, what I mean by that is it probably shouldn't just be bodyweight squats. It should probably be loaded squats if you can tolerate it, or it probably shouldn't be just leg extensions if you can tolerate a leg press. Um, and the idea is we want you to work all of the major muscle groups through a pretty large range of motion at an intensity that feels kind of uncomfortable for multiple sets, multiple times per week. And so we can do that more easily if you're picking exercises that use more than one joint at a time. Although there's a time and a place for isolation exercises, but compound exercises are probably the biggest bang for your buck there. Um, and then you can also probably get to that uncomfortable point a little bit more readily. I mean, just imagine how many leg extensions you're going to have to do <laughs> to get there. And then you're going to have to do leg curls and maybe the, the addu- hip adductor abductor, which is all fine. If that's what, if that's the, 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 the point that somebody's at and that's where their, their entry point is, that's fine. But I think moving towards something that challenges you, that's threatening to you. Right. And if that's if we're talking about threat from a pain perception or pain, pain uh, experience sort of standpoint, then yeah, we want the thing with the highest threat that you're still able to tolerate. So you got shoulder pain, and, and you can't bench press with a straight barbell. Well, 
maybe you can do dumbbell bench and maybe it has to be lighter and tempo or partial range of motion, or maybe it's a machine chest press. You know, it doesn't have to just be TheraBand internal and external rotation stuff. It doesn't have to, but that may be the, the, you know, highest threat thing you're able to tolerate. Um, and so, yeah, I did, uh, we do have the thing on our website, pain and training, what to do. We also have another article, uh, how to return to the gym from a lay, uh, extended layoff. Uh, I did another podcast with, uh, the food medic on exercise recommendations in, uh, for like general health. So if any of this stuff that we've just been rapping about for like 30 minutes interests you one, make sure you listen to this, you can go back and listen to that. But then also those other resources, I think may uh, help clarify kind of the way we think about this and how we would actually do it. IRL as the kids say. Yes. Yeah. All right. Cool. So I want to move on to uh, the next main topic of this podcast. And the biggest reason why I did ask you to, to come on. Sure. So you had a post on August 18th about changing beliefs about things, which I mm -hmm. think is always something that is important to be open-minded and be willing to, you know, and aware of to, you know, what you no know, new data, you know, I changed my, my mind about something. Um, so in, you have a few points here. Yeah, six in particular. I want to just go a little bit over them. Um, so the first thing that you said that you changed your beliefs on uh, were BCAAs. And your post, you said you're probably not useful outside of a low-protein diet or multi-event competitions. Essential amino acids or whey are probably better, though. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, obviously, I'd agree with the new, the new take. Um, so, yeah, effectively, you know, 10 years ago, uh, I mean, I started coaching people in 2008. So even, you know, even more than 10 years ago, the thought was that we had mechanistic data showing that if you took BCAAs, you could generate a muscle protein synthesis response. We also had some data showing that, uh, subjective ratings of fatigue. So RPE in this case was actually a little lower when folks took BCAAs during a workout. And so at that point we're thinking, Hey, some, might be something to these BCAs in addition to this sort of historical sort of uh, sales and use of BCAs in strength sports, bodybuilders, powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, et cetera. Uh, and then the final part was that there's a, more data on hydration, like rehydration strategies where they included BCAs in where you have limited amounts of time to recover between uh, another performance test. So we're thinking like four hours or less. So all of that kind of informed the recommendation that, Hey, if you are trying to seek out the highest level of performance that you possibly can, and you're eating an adequate protein diet. So you at least hitting like 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram body weight, total body weight per day, you may get an additional benefit by taking BCAs. That's what we thought right now. This was in the absence of long-term data showing, or even medium-term or short-term data, to be honest, where people eating an adequate protein diet were taking BCAAs on top of that, um, and 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 having greater muscle cross-sectional area results, or greater strength results, or greater endurance results from a given program. But we just thought, hey, well, there's nothing really risky about taking BCAAs, so let's just do it. As more data emerged it became clear that BCAAs in and of themselves weren't really doing anything um, insofar as yeah, muscle protein synthesis went up, but like whole body protein anabolism didn't change measurably, particularly if you measured it a couple hours later. And so what you're thinking is like, 
well, does this really do anything? Am I just looking at the wrong time frame? I'm looking too acute to really get a better picture of what's going to happen over a day or days or weeks or months. And additional data came out kind of negating that fatigue thing, um, or at least making it more questionable. And so it seemed like if you took BCAAs in the absence of the other essential amino acids, so the BCAAs being part of the essential amino acids, only three of uh, the 20, or three of the nine rather. Well, if you were lacking in the essential amino acids, the muscle protein synthesis response was blunted anyway. So it's like, all right, maybe the BCAs, this is not like, not a good move. And so now we kind of the change the recommendation, essential amino acids may be useful. Although if you had, if you put a gun to my head and said, make a recommendation that you feel like is going to stand for the next, you know, five years. Uh, my recommendation is like, if you're going to supplement with any sort of protein, just make it away protein. Or, or, or soy protein or, or whatever that is rich in essential amino acids. Um, and don't just take essential amino acids by themselves. You, you, it's just, it's hard to stand by that recommendation, just given the way the data is kind of going. And so for example, Perry RX is our Perry workout supplement, right? We started out with BCAs in there, shifted to essential amino acids. And then the next iteration of the supplement will have no essential amino acids in it mainly because most people are, that are going to take it are eating an adequate protein diet. And if they're eating a very low protein diet, for whatever reason, they're going to need more protein, more protein uh, or essential amino acids at each meal to shore up that gap. Right. It's not, you can't just do it pre and post workout. And so what the knock-on effect of that's going to be is that the cost of our supplements going to go down both production and retail. And that will free people up to, if they need to buy additional essential amino acids to shore up the low protein content of each meal, which is how I would prefer people to do it. If they're not eating an adequate amount of protein, if they are eating an adequate amount of protein, I just wouldn't supplement protein around the workout outside of a meal replacement. So that's kind of like, you know, I, and I got a lot of, I got a lot of crap for this because I probably hung on to the BCAAs for a little longer than necessary, but it was just like, I wasn't convinced. Right. I just, and, and, but I think, well, I know what happened is uh, Austin and I were actually having this discussion. He's like, how strongly do you feel about the existing BCA data? Do you feel like you could adequately defend your position about BCAs as far as them improving performance? And I had to admit, no, I was familiar with the data, but being familiar with the data only kind of strengthened the argument against it. You know, so at that point, even though I was selling a product that had BCAs in them, I had to say, man, this is probably not best practice. We got to, we got to get better rather than say, than continuing to perpetuate. Yeah, I think BCAs are probably pretty good on balance and, uh, you know, buy our stuff. So it was a tough pill to swallow. We had a, ate a bunch of stuff that we had lying in, uh, in the warehouse. I mean, I didn't eat it, like eat it, eat it, but I, we didn't sell it only because I felt like we had to, had to, had to change it, you know? Um, so yeah, right now, I think the data suggests that if you're going to supplement with a protein, it should be essential amino acid, like rich in essential amino acids. So any protein that's not rich in essential amino acids is kind of junk. Uh, and if it's the bioavailability of that protein is very low, see collagen protein or like a beef protein isolate, for example, some silk protein, uh, yeah, stuff like that. 
it's probably not great. On the other hand, if the protein supplement that you're picking is rich in essential amino acids, so that's most, most vegan sources, uh, like soy, for example, pea protein, um, and you prefer that to whey, I can't make an argument really against it. And the data bears that out effectively. If you're getting enough protein from whatever source, don't worry about it. And uh, I wouldn't supplement BCAs or essential amino acids outside of maybe the rehydration setting in a short term sort of stat setting, but I would probably still use whey. I'd probably just use a scoop of whey, you know, unless you can't tolerate the taste, the texture, or the amount of fluid you need to like get that down. And you can do that with essential amino acids. Anyway. No, uh, really, really, really awesome stuff. Um, you know, I, I know that in my nutrition class in college, uh, we had one thing was basically like, uh, BCAs could, could essentially potentially have a, an effect on, uh, central fatigue. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, not the amino acid was like tr- crossing the blood brain barrier and like being a precursor to some of the fatigue neurotransmitters. But then arachidonic acid comes in and says, Nope. Yeah, exactly. It's like, eh, probably not. And yeah. again, even if you like that data was, uh, unopposed, the sample size of the data set where you're getting it is so small. Again, you just can't feel confident in it. Certainly not enough to be like, this is our recommendation. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think there are harms to taking it outside of the risk of like contamination in the supplements, which is problematic, um, financial resources. I don't, but I don't think it's going to like lower or blunt your muscle anabolism. I just also don't think it, I don't think there's any data suggesting it's going to do something positive for you. So I wouldn't even do it just to like, just in case I just, yeah, it save your money, buy other stuff or like, you know, <laughs> or don't. You well, know, in, in, in terms of supplements and that, that you, that you would recommend, uh, what would you recommend? Yeah. So anything if, you know, the, yeah, the, the quick and dirty is if you look on our PeriRx label, that's kind of what I would recommend right now, minus the essential amino acids. I think those, I mean, like I said, we're going to pull them out. I don't feel as strongly about taking those out as I did about the BCAAs, but it's kind of like, I just don't see a purpose for the additional cost. So right now our supplement, I think is like 45 or $49. It's going to be less than that because we don't have to pay as much to produce the stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, creatine, citrulline malate, beta alanine, um, TMG, which is that trimethylglycerin, that beetroot extract seems to work like an osmolite draws water into the muscle. That's anabolic in and of itself. Um, Yeah. You can make a case for all of those things. The, uh, office of dietary supplements, ODS actually has a really nice list of like, it's like a compendium of all the data for supplements for athletic performance. The IOC international Olympic committee also has a list on this. And then finally the international society for sports nutrition, ISSN, their latest update, I believe was 2018 by Kursik. Uh, they came out with the effectively, again, a review of all the evidence, all the data out on, supplements and like what actually works. Um, there's stuff that's coming out that is kind of interesting, but the data is equivocal. So thing people will be like, what do you think about theanine or like these adaptogens like rhodiola or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, I don't think anything of them right now because the data isn't strong enough for me to think. I, and I, I would say within that, I'm more cautious now. Yeah. Ma- mainly because my experience with the PCAs, which, which compared to those things had a lot more was, evidence like thing like like deaspartic acid yeah yeah deaspartic acid had a bunch of evidence and then you know oh it increases testosterone also and then it, no actually lowers testosterone yeah i lower and then in further it's like when people are like yeah but if it boosts testosterone a little bit that's got to be good right it's like well we don't yeah. know if that it's, it's probably not clinically relevant if it's in the the normal range um and then look, it's, let's it's look what happens 
it's always been yes. it's always been kind of funny to me with like you know uh the whole like wanting to increase testosterone for like other like other means necessary and the reality is you're not really going to get elevated out of normal anyways yeah exogenous to testosterone yeah, if you take a super physiological dose of testosterone, the data we have right now shows a dose-dependent relationship between testosterone dose and muscle mass outcomes. We, that data is pretty rock solid. Um, the issue is that when compared to placebo, who actually gain less, obviously, lean body mass because they're not taking super physiological doses, we do not have good evidence that there's a strength difference in these individuals, meaning that the folks who gain the most lean body mass compared to the least, the strength outcomes seem to be about the same, even though they're on the same program. With respect to cardiorespiratory performance, yeah, your red blood cell count goes up, your hemat uh, hematocrit goes up, and so you're thinking, wow, I got all this extra oxygen carrying capacity, my VO2 max is going to go through the roof. It's like, well, your blood actually also became more viscous, and so it's a you know, give and take here, and so cardiorespiratory fitness levels don't necessarily jump up. Um, but again, now we're, we're still talking about exogenous, super physiological doses of testosterone. I feel very comfortable in saying that individuals who are hypogonadal, so low testosterone levels, verified by two successive tests uh, with no other contraindications to testosterone replacement, do tend to have better performance, increased muscle mass, increased cardiorespiratory fitness, and a lower risk of a handful of uh, conditions, including depression, et cetera, when they are on TRT. But that again, you have to verify that an individual is hypogonadal. Uh, we should also say that individuals who are hypogonadal from exercise, which happens quite frequently, it's called exercise hypogonadal male condition. So EHMC, these folks have low testosterone levels. They're lower than the lowest cutoff, but they have no symptoms, no symptoms. And so the thought is that this is a sort of adaptive response to very high training volumes, um, both because they're the fluid component of their vascular system expands in addition, in response to all the training. So they sweat a lot. So your vascular component expands, um, and you become more sensitive to the testosterone that you already have on board. And so it's just this complex relationship, right? It's not just increased test, increased strength until you're at that super physiological dose. Uh, and that's why, again, you see this complex relationship between correlate correlation, correlational data uh, between testosterone levels and performance. Um, and that include that's amongst women and amongst men. Uh, so yeah, if you're trying to take something to increase testosterone and it's not super physiological doses of testosterone, I don't think that I would, I would feel comfortable. And I certainly feel confident, wouldn't feel confident based on the existing data that that's going to improve your performance. And there's risks there too. Uh, like, especially with respect to, uh, testosterone, in, uh, like supplements that are designed to increase testosterone. So those are among the highest for contamination. We're talking close to two thirds, maybe more because they're not actually testing all these supplements. They just took this random sample of hundred supplements and like 66 or 67 of them were contaminated with either anabolics or other illicit substances. And so there are a number of cases each year of like liver failure, kidney failure, et cetera, due to contaminated supplements. And you're like, what does the risk really, or does the benefit really outweigh the risk here? And I would say for most individuals, it, it probably doesn't. You'd want to take the least amount of supplements possible. And so in that you'd want good evidence on all of them. And you want to make sure that they're of high quality. So are they CGMP? 
accredited. So that's good manufacturing processes. There's a European one as well, but in the United States, it's CGMP, it should be on a label. And then it needs to be verified by a third-party lab. So it could be USP, so that's United States Pharmacopeia. Uh, you could do informed uh, consent, that's what we use. It could be um, NSF. Again, those are also on the label. And what they do is they batch test each batch of supplements to make sure there are no contaminants that would either get somebody to pop positive on a WADA drug test um, or contaminants that are otherwise stuff you don't want in there. So uh, that would be my quick and dirty on like supplements. Awesome. So moving on to um, number two, it's about obesity. Uh, this smoking gun appears to be a decreased in sensitivity to satiety signals in an obesogenic environments. Fortunately, there are many factors that can improve feelings of fullness in response to a meal. Focusing here is a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah. The obesity uh, epidemic is obviously a huge public health problem. Costs a lot of money to everyone every year. Ca takes a lot of years off people's lives. Effectively worsens the outcomes for every medical condition um, known to man. Uh, except for maybe uh, osteopenia, osteoporosis, because individuals with an elevated BMI tend to not, that tends to decrease the risk. Also maybe hernias, which is pretty interesting. So people who have um, excess adiposity or higher BMIs tend to have a lower risk of hernias, but that's, that's for another podcast. Uh, in any case, when people are like, well, what causes obesity, right? And if you ask a person who is kind of into science, maybe you're a personal trainer, maybe has some sort of fitness background. They'd say, well, oh, well, the person's eating too many calories. Calories in are greater than calories out, which is actually not true. Most individuals uh, with obesity uh, or excess body fat, which is effectively what we're talking about here, tend to be an energy balance, meaning that the calories in is equivalent to the calories out. It's the same thing as a lean individual who's not actively gaining or losing weight. The problem is that individuals with excess adiposity are maintaining an elevated calorie intake despite full or overflowing energy reserves. What you would think would happen if this was tightly regulated is that individuals, once their fat stores, their energy reserves expanded, that they would be triggered to eat less and otherwise maintain a healthy sort of body fat uh, level. But instead, individuals with obesity tend to not respond to those signals. And so how that happens is because they have a compromised appetite satiety sort of relationship, meaning that satiety, meaning fullness in this case, appetite effectively being the biological, psychological, environmental, and social uh, inputs that drive food seeking behaviors and eating behaviors. So when you are less sensitive to feelings of fullness, you're going to eat more. And that can happen due to genetics. People can be, you know, two individuals with different genetics can be given the same meal. And the, you know, the person with a genetically lower satiety response is going to be hungrier afterwards or hungrier throughout and eat and then therefore consume more food. And so from a lifestyle perspective, how would you address this? you would try to set somebody up for success to restore sensitivity to satiety signals or feelings of fullness. And so you can do this via the diet. So increasing dietary protein, increasing dietary fiber, reducing dietary fat, uh, and then also the eating environment. So you can reduce highly hyper palatable energy dense foods, like access to them. Uh, so people uh, because those tend to override any sort of satiety signals and people will overeat 
you can, uh, uh, so that was the food environment rather, you can address the food, uh, the actual eating environment, which is how you're actually eating your meals. Where do you eat your meals at? So if you have somebody eat in a distraction-free sort of environment, they tend to eat less and become more responsive to satiety signals. So that's no phone, no TV, no, no computer or whatever, while they're sitting down at a table at similar meal times each day, they tend to become more sensitive to satiety signals and exercise. One of the ways that exercise helps promote weight maintenance um, is by increasing the sensitivity to satiety signals. So we actually don't compensate that much for exercise, the energy expenditure during exercise, rather what happens is people become more sensitive to satiety signals. Somebody might say, you know, I do this hard workout. I'm actually hungrier. I feel hungrier. That is a normal experience. However, they tend to eat less than they would if they had not exercised, but still had the same hunger sort of rating. And it's because they're more sensitive to those satiety signals. So exercise, one of the ways in which it promotes weight maintenance um, is by increasing the sensitivity to feelings of fullness. And then that's on top of improving body composition. So increase muscle mass, decrease fat mass. Um, and by decreasing fat mass, you're reducing this sort of uh, signals to the brain that actually compromises satiety signaling in the first place. So that's how you would kind of address it from a lifestyle perspective. And unfortunately, those things, even when done perfectly, if somebody is set up in a, with, they were dealt a poor genetic hand, if their environment is something they can't really modify or is otherwise very, very obesogenic. So they live in a, everybody talks about a food desert. A food desert is where there's a a lack of availability to like health promoting foods, right? The grocery stores with fresh produce or whatever, they don't exist. Uh, but the data actually suggests that food swamps are more predictive of increased BMI. A food swamp is not, you may have access to like health promoting foods. Um, however, you have an increased sort of density of fast food, hyper palatable energy dense foods. And so you're in this swamp of like, you know, high calorie, high fat, high sugar, high sodium foods that ultimately, again, override that satiety sort of uh, signal. And even when you build supermarkets that serve, that sell nothing but fresh produce, people still don't respond to that because they're in this food swamp. Um, and so in that case uh, and more, particularly if people, you know, what if they can't exercise? Well, they literally can't, they don't have any access to a gym or a safe place to exercise or whatever, or they have a musculoskeletal sort of disability that doesn't allow them to participate regularly, or they have a medical condition. They have, you know, really severe COPD that prevents them from, from meeting the current physical activity guidelines. They should still find some way to be active, but it may not be enough. And that seems to happen quite frequently given, you know, our lack of results with respect to successful weight loss, which is losing about 5% of total body weight and keeping it off. Uh, for months. So in that case, you turn to medications and every single FDA approved weight loss medication that we have right now increases satiety and reduces appetite. Every single one of them, even so, for example, Orlistat, which is a lipase inhibitor. We originally thought the reason this worked is because it blocked uptake of fatty acids in the small intestine. And, uh, and so effectively you were absorbing less calories, right? And you would just poop it out. Uh, sometimes violently, which is a weird side effect of that medication. But we, the latest data on that particular medication suggests that it actually interacts in an area of the lateral hypothalamus, which is where your appetite and satiety centers are. And it basically makes people have lower appetite and greater satiety to a given meal. So they eat less. 
you move forward to the GLP-1 agonists, so liraglutide, semaglutide. These things increase insulin. They were originally used in diabetes. They had found out they had this knock-on effect of weight loss. Acts at the same level of the brain, same area of the brain, that lateral hypothalamus, decreases appetite, increases satiety. Uh, even stimulant medications, so like Contrave, or uh, which is a... Uh, 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 sorry, not, not contrave, but like fentermine, for example, we think it's like this, oh, it's just going to increase your metabolic rate, increase your heart rate or whatever. Guess what? Still acts that same aspect of the brain decreases appetite, uh, and increases satiety. All of these things, all these medications lower the dietary RPE. It is easier to stick to an energy restricted diet. And if you're not hungry, guess what? You're not going to eat as much. And so again, it's effectively overriding that sort of dysregulation that a person with excess adiposity or a person with obesity has. They're effectively maintaining greater than normal, greater than healthy energy reserves. And they're unable to sort of compensate for that by eating less because their appetite's still high, satiety's still low. So these medications kind of shore up that difference. And then the last, not the last uh, sort of treatment we have for this, but sometimes we can use these with medications is surgery. And people think, oh, you just, you made the stomach smaller, you rerouted the stuff, the, the, the GI tract. And so people are just eating less food. Well, that is true to some extent, especially early on post in the post-op period. Uh, but that doesn't hold forever. The real reason why bariatric surgery works, uh, they're actually terming this a metabolic surgery because it, again, increases satiety decreases uh, appetite at the level of the brain. So this all works centrally in the brain to increase satiety, decrease appetite. And I think the most important thing for people listening to this to take away is that if you can't control the appetite, the satiety, you're going to have a hard time. That's point one. Point two is that people are going to have different appetites and satiety responses to a given food food environment, eating environment, et cetera, due to their genetics, how they were brought up, their personal preferences, et cetera. So when people can't quote unquote, stick to a diet, it's not a willpower thing. You can't just try harder to get out of this, right? It's not necessarily their fault, but it is their responsibility. And so us as medical providers, our, our thing is, well, what else can we do? Great. We have medications, we have potential surgery. Uh, and so if we can destigmatize obesity by saying, you know, it's a lack of willpower, these people are lazy because they're not doing these things. Well, even when they try, right, it still may not be enough. And so we have additional treatments. So those would be the two things I'd like to take away from that. I know, again, I'm rambling, but like, <laughs> I think this is important. No, those are all really, really great things. Um, last thing I'm going to say about this before we uh, move on is sure. uh, I did write one paper uh, for my, my, my senior year. Um, it was about the dopamine response to food and basically, um, how do we kind of like, like, you know, like is food addiction real? What, what leads to food seeking behaviors of certain foods over other foods? And, um, you know, this is very, very interesting. There's not a ton of research done this and mostly it's done under rats, not human models. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, you know, like there is a big thing about like, you know, you will overeat on sugary foods. Um, like for example, one of them they give rat, they give rat, that's like, like M&Ms and then like something else. And like it measured, measured like the dopamine response to it and override their satiety signals so much and um, whatnot. And I, I do think that, um, you know, it, it's tough because, you know, people want to eat tasty foods, 
Um, but sometimes it's just about that whole education, having proper expectations about, you know, like, well, so if you're dieting, if this is your, like your, like your, your goal, you know, it's just like, well, there's one of the reasons why I like flexible dieting is because it does have the education component of it saying, Hey, you know, like you can eat, you could eat popped arts and whey protein and be shredded, um, you know, and probably have improved health benefits if you did lose weight. Um, you know, and we're exercising, we're, we're healthy, but you know, it's probably gonna be hard from a satiety and fullness standpoint, you know, like, like you know, we can look, look like any bodybuilder, you know, if you ask them and they're in, like deep in prep, it's like, do they want to like eat like the sugary, hyperpalatable, carry, carry dead dense food? Yeah. But like for myself, like every single time, like I've dieted down for something, I'm like, I just want to eat more of like what I'm eating. So I, I think those are like, I think that's like really, really, really great uh, takeaway for, for everybody is like, obviously, if you're struggling with, with, with losing weight, you know, look for these, you know, in that tier system that you kind of mentioned, you know, the environments, food environments, you know, food choices, um, you know, go to doctor if you need further help. Um, and then, you know, obviously this isn't going to be just a, you know, a, this is a very complicated to, to talk about. You've got a whole podcast about, um, but uh we can, you know, certainly again, come back to the, the, the beginning, encouraging people to, to exercise or down, down the barriers and, you know, making more, you know, low calorie density foods, maybe a little bit more palatable could also help with adherence in some cases. Yep. Yeah. I mean, effectively any diet that works has altered the food environment in such a way where an individual is now meeting the targeted energy intake. So and bodybuilders are like, all right, well, I'm only going to eat clean foods, right? Whatever that means these, you know, and so, yeah, their food environment is now, instead of being very extent expansive with eating potentially anything under the sun, it's very restricted. If you're low carb, you've altered your food environment. If you're low fat, you've altered your food environment. And if it doesn't work, it's because it didn't alter your food environment enough to generate the energy intake level that you would prefer. And so, yeah. Yeah, it could be another podcast. Maybe that's the second. Maybe that's part two. <laughs> well, um, so I wanted to then have these next two points in one. So sure. programming and progressive loading versus progressive aggressive overload. Sure. Um, so programming, no more writing and rep, rep ranges, exercise selection, et cetera, and emphasis on personal preference with the necessary constraints of the desired fitness adaptations. These constraints are wider than I previously thought. Likewise, progressive overloading versus progressive overload, which I flip and love this. You don't get stronger by adding weight on the bar. You get stronger and then are able to add weight to the bar. Fitness adaptations, fitness adaptations are on, on a schedule of their own and you can't force them. Yeah. Yeah. So the first part, like with the variety of rep ranges, it's like, there are a lot of different ways to get there. Are a lot of different roads to Rome. Um, so, and I'm strictly talking about a hypertrophy and strength, strength being force production measured in a specific context. So you can, for example, use fives, sixes, sevens, fours, whatever, to get bigger muscles. You can use fives, sixes, sevens, eights, tens, twelves, whatever, to get stronger. Just the specific adaptation is going to be altered slightly with respect to strength. Um, so if we're just talking about low velocity, maximal strength improvement, um, there's a, definitely a place for low rep, higher intensity work, but the data, man, we just have good data showing that for newer trainees effectively doing any sort of rep range, you know, whether it be three to kind of up to 15 reps, um, you know, they're going to get stronger at 
and as long as the intensity is kind of 70% ish, 65% or higher, they're going to get stronger. And so this idea that you only have to only should do fives only should do threes. It's like, well, why you're chasing very specific adaptations in that rep range. And I think they're great, but I think especially for newer lifters, you should be chasing multiple different adaptations that kind of all sum together, uh, to, to yield, um, something greater than its parts. So a new lifter. Yeah. I want you to work in the three to five rep range, particularly on exercises that it's well suited at. Maybe that squat bench, deadlift press, or some variations thereof. But I also want you to work in six, seven, eights, again, for exercises that that's well suited for. And I also want you to work in 10 to 15, the 10 to 15 rep range, because again, all these adaptations are ones that you're going to want to pull from at various points in your athletic career, if you're going to compete. And so again, I think having this increased variety of rep ranges um, yields, uh, uh, allows for a more complete sort of development of the athlete rather than hyper-specializing early on. You don't want to hyper-specialize early on. You can hyper-specialize or specialize later as you get closer to a competition, to a meet that's totally on, you know, that's, that's on brand or on par with, with what the data says right now. And, and both the experience that people have, uh, uh, programming for folks, but early on, I wouldn't hyper-specialize. I don't, I don't see a real reason for it. I think all it does is increase risk of burnout, injury risk, and kind of limits an individual's overall development. So you can get strong a lot of different ways. Um, but I think best practice would be to chase a bunch of PRs at different rep ranges with different exercises, develop more fully as an athlete, and then specify later on if needed, if you, you never need to specify, like, don't, don't do it. What's the point, right? Not everybody needs to be a power lifter. The second part of this with respect to progressive loading, I think, I, I guess I thought it, it's like a semantic thing, right? When people are talking about progressive overload, there's this underlying thing that it has to be heavier, harder, more reps, less rest, whatever, week to week or every second week or at some time interval, right? That's the idea behind, I think when most people are asked to define progressive overload, that's what they are getting at. And I, I agree that things over time should get heavier or you should do more reps or the rest period should decrease. But I think the exertion level or the difficulty level should remain about the same. It's like the Greg Lamont quote, you know, it never gets easier. You just go faster, but the opposite, it, it, it never gets necessarily harder. You, you just get better. You let the adaptations come to you. They are on different time scales, whether it be maximal strength versus hypertrophy, right? Maximal strength development probably happens a little faster than hypertrophy, which is a little, you know, lagging behind. And that's different than cardiorespiratory fitness. And also they're the way the length of time it takes for them to decay is also different. Um, and then individual, uh, variations are going to mess all that up anyway. So there's not really a general sort of index here, but the, the idea is that the programming on a given day should meet a person where they're at. You should meet a person where they're at. So it shouldn't necessarily be harder or easier day to day compared to the previous week. Right. So if you have a hard session on Monday, for example, yeah, it should be hard the next Monday too, but no harder. And so if that means you can add weight, do more reps, cut the rest periods. Cool. Your performance has demonstrably increased from week to week. And you're able then the appropriate load, the appropriate training stimulus is therefore great is is uh, a little heavier or with more reps or with less rest than the week before. Great. Cause you got better. And so it has to do that to meet you where you're at. If you come into that, that heavy session on Monday and you're feeling you're dragging, 
or you're super stressed, something bad happened at home, whatever. Well, you can still have a session that's the same level of difficulty. It's just going to be a little lighter or with less reps or with, you know, longer rest periods. Um, I think it should be just the same level of difficulty from week to week or through a repeated sort of microcycle, as long as you're doing that. If it's getting harder week by week, I don't know that you're actually getting any stronger. I just think that the weight on the bar is changing if we're just talking about weight, meaning that if week one, you squat 315 for, you know, five sets of five and you rated each set of five RP seven. And then the next week you do 325 for five sets of five and each sets RP eight. Well, I don't know if you got any stronger. Yes. The weight on the bar is heavier, but your exertion went up. And if the week after that you do 335 for five sets of five and each sets an RP nine. Well, again, it's heavier. That is true, but I don't know that you're any stronger than week one. And so, and somebody might be listening at home and they go, yeah, well, it's more weight. So it's going to drive the adaptation better. It's like, we don't really have data on that. If you're doing stuff above 70% and the volume is matched, the data kind of shows the net strength gain is going to be about the same, but you're incurring so much more fatigue from the higher RPE work. And so when you incur additional fatigue, what you're actually doing is masking some fitness adaptations that you have on board. So you're unable to realize those. So what I would rather have the person do, maybe it's 315, five sets of five on week one, 315, five sets of five on week two, week three, they come in, they're feeling a little froggy, you know, feeling good. And as they're warming up to saying, Hey, you know, I feel a little bit better than I did last week. Maybe it's 320 for five, 325 for five sets of five at RP seven. That is a demonstrable increase in strength by keeping the other constraints the same. It's just like, you don't add weight to the bar and squat higher just because it's more weight. Right. I mean, if people did, if using that example, it's very apparent, it's like, well, you're no stronger. You just change, you change the constraints. So yeah, I would prefer that when people are mapping out their program and they're like, well, here's how hard each session should be. That level of hardness is what I should be targeting week to week. And if I'm overshooting, if I'm adding too much weight, adding too many reps, cutting the rest periods by too much, that the, 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 the level of difficulty is going to climb substantially, but you're not necessarily going to get any more fitness adaptations. If anything, even if you do get a little bit extra fitness adaptation, well, you're going to get a lot more fatigue. And so you're going to be unable to realize those likely until you're able to tolerate that. What I'd rather see you do is let's start with something you can tolerate. That's our benchmark. And then when you get stronger, you're able to add more weight not add more weight and then become stronger. Yeah. So it's kind of like this opposite sort of deal. And, and guys, I'm doing the same thing. All right. Every session I go in, I want to add weight to the barbell. I really do. But if it's not there, I won't take it. And that for me, especially lately has made my numbers go through the roof. Here's what's happened. Uh, Yeah. So like, I think, I hit uh, my first 600 pound squat at 200 pound body weight in knee sleeves. Uh, that was 2018. I had squatted more than that in knee, in knee wraps before, but in knee sleeves, that was it. That was 2018, uh, fall. And again, I would just, I kept banging my head against the wall. My best deadlift at the time was 725. My best bench press was 430. I kept banging my head against the wall. I would start a mesocycle, you know, at a lower weight and then build up over the course of the mesocycle then do like a peaking block. And then, all right, we're going to test. And it's like, Hey, all the weights are going up each week. Yeah. It's a little harder, but who cares? It's more weight. That's what you want. 
And I was unable to really get past that. It's only until I kind of internalized this that my results really and, and fairly readily took off. So I've been on this crazy LP, like, and I say linear progression and it's not tongue in cheek because it's really what's happening. My linear progression is I'm able to add weight to the barbell like almost every week without changing anything as far as RPE, depth, you know, volume, et cetera. I squatted 585. Uh, this must've been five weeks ago. And then the next week I squatted 590, same RPE. Then then a week after that, I squatted 606. And then I squatted 618, then 633, and then 643 week by week. But the RP, it stayed the same. I was literally doing the same, like I felt the same level of hardness. 585, I thought I was like, fuck, this is heavy. But it felt the same amount of heavy as 640, 641. And my deadlift went from, I think I started this mesocycle at 660 and I pulled seven, uh, seven, four, no, seven thirty-eight now. And again, it's the same level of hardness. 660 felt like it was going to kill me, <laughs> you know, and bench press is the same thing. And it's like, this is the way I think that the adaptations kind of, kind of work. Um, you, if you are outstripping somebody's tolerance for training, you're effectively blunting their fitness adaptations that they have on board with extra fatigue. And so, yeah, the idea is to avoid doing that. Don't over fatigue somebody just for the sake of more weight, because you're, you're, you're choosing then short-term performance rather than long-term development. Yeah. I I think that's something that was, it's like something that like I tell my clients all the time is it's okay to do the same weight next week. Yeah. Okay. And something I always like, I actually really, really like doing that. I've done doing a little bit more with myself and, like with my coach, Eric Bodhorn is I do lots of ascending volume or say, mm-hmm. well, I really like, I'm really honest with myself about like, how do I, my world upsets feel, you know? And like, you know, like, and I was realizing like, man, like whenever I am just in my abilities, kind of like you and not like, well, add more weight, like get strong. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying harder. So obviously weight up more strong. It's like, no, like, you, nope. like you almost died last week. <laughs> how long are you going to keep doing this for um and kind of just being like and like i I think it's it can be difficult in practice to uh, to understand that but once you kind of realize oh this is how fast i adapt i think sometimes your training expectations get a lot better you start Mm -hmm. in the gym a lot more because i don't know about you like if i have like every single session it's like 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 we said i'm beating my head against the wall i'm like constantly grinding out reps like not only is like my fatigue like my similar to fatigue ratio just terrible i'm like mm-hmm. i'm scared of like next session i'm not as enthusiastic about my training the weights don't feel good like i love like, lifting heavy weights i don't like feeling like like i saw jesus on every single rep yeah. I, I was like crawling out of the gym like that's not that, that's not fun like no. you do that shit for the platform or like when yep. hurts, but like when you're training train and um, you know, it's something like that, you know, like, like I've started to do more is like, uh, I know Dr. Uh, Dr. Baraki had a post about, about this or like, you know, I'm just training more with like lower effort, like on my, on my, my back down sets and for the majority of my, my, my volume with those caveats of it being 70% plus, and then having more higher RPE one, like, you know, maybe it's eight to nine at like a one to a three re- re- like rep range. And like, maybe you're periodizing that or you do like, like a three, three, two, one, like a four week block. And then you wave load that and you keep doing that. And you keep coming back, back to, back to that. That's something that like I've been doing like myself personally with, with, uh, with my coach. And, um, like I've been getting, like, I know I've been in a deficit basically for like the past, like three months 
for the this mm-hmm. I said on all time PR, you know, I finally got that, that that elite total. Um, but it's something that is hard to, especially if you're like, if you're doing lifting for therapy, it's like you want to have that. But like something that I will do in like my training paradigm is like, uh, like on my combat list, so like more high fatigue depth movements. I'm like, look, like there's like one higher exposure, maybe top set that's programmed in, and then you take everything else. You know, it should feel like your challenge, but like you know, we're not going to going 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 to die here. And then yeah. like my accessory is harder because you know, high virtually purposes and the data says you probably need to push a little closer to failure and there's less of a fatigue cost. Yeah. Um, then going off of like the programming thing. Yeah. Like my, I had a podcast with Dr. Eric Helms back last October, completely rocked my world and changed my whole <laughs> entire philosophy on like programming. He's like prior to that, I had very much like a juggernaut training systems type of thing, which I'm not saying like that, like, like that's wrong. But like I thought there has to be specific blocks of XYZ. Like there has to be well, like, like there's like just a strength block. But then I was also like realizing when I was talking with him, like I've set PRs, I've been doing like nothing but like low sets of six on so like one or max. Yeah. Like, and this is not a strength block, this is a hypertrophy block. What <laughs> like how though? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I I think that like and like we're still learning more and more and more things, but I love what, what you said. The the main takeaway there is there's a lot of different ways to get strong. But there are some certain parameters that probably will increase your likelihood of getting stronger in versus, you know, in terms of, you know, average and intensity, exercise selection, um, your, your effort levels, how much you want, you know, are respecting your ability to adapt, um, all that stuff. Um, yep. So- yeah. It's like, it's like you, you want to use the rep range and average intensity that drives the adaptations that you're seeking. And then so that's going to tell them the type of adaptation you're getting. And then the volume is going to determine the magnitude. The, the, the issue here then is fatigue control because the higher the magnitude, the higher the volume, right? The more training tolerance you need. And if you don't have that training tolerance on board, all you're going to do then is be chasing fatigue. Effectively, you're like, wow, my fatigue is pegged right, right off the meter. And so you're not going to get those, fit, those fitness adaptations to, to be realized they're cloaked in fatigue. And so it's like you, what you'd rather do is give somebody just enough fatigue, right? You've like done just enough training to fatigue them a little bit, a little bit and drive it and enough to drive the fitness adaptations and then kind of keep that over time until they can actually tolerate more training. Once they can tolerate more training, then you can ratchet it up. But what people do instead is they're like, I got to force this. I need more volume, I need more intensity, more fatigue. And it's like, you're not ready for that. Not yet. And then we see this in hypertrophy. You can add volume and volume and volume and volume and volume and volume. And then people don't get any bigger. And they're like, well, I'm doing all this volume. I thought volume was the biggest driver of hypertrophy. It's like, yeah, well, you're too fatigued for you to actually grow. All you're trying to do, all your body's able to do is keep your head above water. And so you don't die. It's like, you know, so, so it's. On the one hand, people are like, so you're saying to do a little less. And I'm like, well, maybe if you're, if your fatigue is pegged off the, uh, you know, off the meter, you may have to do less. Is it, le- maybe it's less weight. Maybe your sets, instead of being an RP nine for most of the time, the RP seven, right. Or, or less, uh, maybe it's a little less volume and you get, you just got to find that entry point to match the training to where your current fitness levels are. And as your fitness levels increase and your training tolerance increases, well, then you're going to be doing weird stuff like nine sets of three, you know, on multiple different exercises per day. And people are like, oh my gosh, that's so many sets. It's like, well, you're the one who said you wanted to train all with all this volume, you know, it's like, uh, so yeah, I think, I think if you are, feel like you're training your butt off and you're not really getting the results that you want, I'd be really curious to look at like, man, is your fatigue, is that matched to what you can currently tolerate? Cause it seems unlikely. 
So I guess um, you did have one, one thing about uh, adherence. Um, I think that you talk a lot about that with, um, with, with obesity. And mm-hmm. uh, since we're kind of coming up on, I don't want, I'm, uh, I'm uh, conscious of time. I just want to have the one last thing about total daily energy expenditure. Yeah. It's really, I, I love this because this is something I have experience with. Um, but you say it probably doesn't increase significantly from exercise. For example, during a group of run- runners weekly mileage from 25 to 50 kilometers didn't increase their total daily energy, energy expenditure. Rather, there are multiple redundant mechanisms in place to alter other biological processes, energy costs in order to keep total daily energy expenditure within a fairly tight range. This may even be one of the ways exercise works to improve health, e.g. because exercise costs energy, there's less available energy for inflammatory processes underlying many chronic diseases. Yeah. Yeah. It's like um, people will read that. They'll say, so if I exercise, I'm not using any energy when I exercise. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the energy that you're using during exercise is going to be offset by other processes using less energy. Um, and so what we see in all of the chronic exercise studies where they accurately, or at least to some extent measure, um, energy expenditure. So they usually use doubly labeled water. It's like a 5% error bar, give or take. So it's not perfect, but about 80% of the energy expenditure from exercise in these chronic exercise studies lasting longer than I think it's 24 weeks or 26 weeks is um, effectively accounted for by changes in other energy using processes that make up your basal metabolic rate, that make up your uh, thermic effect of food, your dietary, that diet induced thermogenesis, um, uh, non-exercise, uh, uh, energy expenditure. Um, and so all these things are dynamic and variable, uh, amongst individuals. And then effectively there's a quite narrow range of sustainable energy expenditure for humans. Um, if you go above that, you will need to eat more and more and more and more and more. And at some level it's, you can't sustain that. That's what happens at the Tour de France. It's basically an eating competition on wheels. And so people are like trying to eat all this food so they don't start losing weight, but they can't keep up because their energy expenditure is so, so high, but that's only for a short period of time. People aren't doing that year in and year out. Um, So what we see from, again, exercise that exceeds the current physical activity guidelines, about 80% or so of that energy expenditure that you use during exercise is compensated via other processes in the body, multiple redundant mechanisms to effectively keep your total daily energy expenditure similar uh, to what it would be if you were uh, rather sedentary. We see similar energy expenditures between sedentary individuals and the highly active individuals uh, when corrected for total body weight. So what this means to me is not that exercise isn't useful for weight loss because we have data showing, yeah, it increases satiety, improves body composition, improves a plethora of health uh, conditions, most, most all um, health conditions. Uh, but rather it's not from an energy expenditure standpoint, the way that exercise works to help, help folks lose weight. Rather, it's mostly from that satiety standpoint and body composition standpoint. If you reduce fat mass, you get less of this sort of uh, the fat, uh, the signaling that comes from the fat tissue itself that actually compromises appetite and satiety, uh, sort of sensitivity. Those are these little hormones released by the adipose tissue called the dipokines. They interact all organ systems all over the body. They tend to be inflammatory. And, uh, yeah, if you have less fat mass from exercise, then, uh, you have less of that inflammatory sort of thing going on. Um, also means that if you were thinking about what should I lower calories or should I increase my exercise to lose weight? Well, Lowering the calories would be the the right move if you can. 
if you can. Again, not everybody can modify their food environment in a way that results in the lower energy expenditure to continue weight loss. Uh, but yeah, that would be the move if you were between those two choices. And then the final part of this that has to do with the actual health promoting sort of effects of exercise, because you're using so much energy during exercise, you have less available energy to do other stuff. So less potential energy for inflammatory reactions. Uh, that's why uh, a lot of different metrics of inflammation go down um, in the chronic setting with respect to exercise. Um, and you know, this may be one of the ways that exercise lowers blood pressure, for example, uh, in addition to the aerobic nature of some exercise or, uh, but it happens with resistance training too, which is not aerobic. And so it's like, well, how does that lower blood pressure? It's like, well, yeah, it lowers fat mass. <clears throat> yeah. It can, uh, <clears throat> increase elasticity in the, in the blood vessels, but also the reduced energy, uh, availability, um, has now you have less energy for the low grade inflammation that was causing vasoconstriction to a higher than normal level in the first place. Uh, so that's kind of like the bleeding edge of the research with respect to the constrained energy model, as far as like, how does this interact with exercise? Um, I did a podcast with Dr. Herman Ponzer. He kind of pioneered this sort of model, um, at least in, uh, with respect to the research on it in modern times. So if in that podcast show notes, there are multiple papers that he's written. If you're very curious about this, I would refer you there, um, specifically his 2018 article about how exercise and the constrained energy model, uh, come together. It's a pretty, uh, pretty good, uh, pretty good paper. But I think what people need to take away from this is that unless you're exercising a ton, meaning like your competitive CrossFit games athlete, you're training two or three times a day, you know, four or five hours a day, or you're training for an ultra endurance event, or you're training for, you know, something where you're, you, you're literally training more than you're doing anything else besides maybe sleeping. It is highly unlikely that your total daily energy expenditure is going to change significantly long-term. And you also have to recognize for even the, that level of training, you're not doing it forever. You're doing it for a short period of time for a competition. And then you're going back to some level of exercise, but not a lot. We have data on people who ran a marathon every day for weeks on end, their total daily energy expenditure didn't really change. We have data where people went from 25 kilometers to 50 kilometers of weekly running volume, their energy expenditure did not change. We have the multiple studies uh, on tens of thousands of individuals uh, for, uh, we call them chronic exercisers. So greater than six months of exercise training where their total daily energy expenditure as measured did not change um, significantly. And it's like, I think when people are like, are thinking about why they should exercise, maybe one of the first thing that comes to their brain is, is to burn calories. It's like, well, maybe you could make an argument for that. If you're going to reduce the energy availability for these inflammatory processes, maybe that's true if I'm being charitable, but it's not for like, oh, if I lose, if I burn energy during exercise, I'm going to lose weight because everything else is going to stay the same. It's not going to stay the same. Your basal metabolic rate's not going to stay the same. Your therm the thermic effect of food or diet induced thermogenesis isn't going to stay the same. Your non-exercise energy expenditure isn't going to stay the same. Your spontaneous physical activity energy expenditure isn't going to stay the same. It's all dynamic. And this, these are evolutionarily derived sort of processes that stop humans from hemorrhaging weight and making them more susceptible to either being prey <laughs> from a predator or, or otherwise getting sick or having some sort of uh, bad outcome where they can't pass on their genes. Cause if you think about it, most of the processes that we have, uh, for our, our, uh, in our body are set up so that we can just reproduce and pass on our genes. 
if it's if it doesn't contribute to us passing our genes forward to the next generation, it's not selected for. So effectively, anything that happens after our reproductive years has not been selected for from an evolutionary standpoint. Yes, uh, Alzheimer's occurs more readily at old age. That's not derived from evolution unless there's a co-occurring sort of you know, genetic thing that improves your ability to reproduce. Does that make sense? It's like if, if the prime productive years are, uh, you know, 16 to 25, 16 to 30, 16 to 40 for men, or, and, and then for women, it's, it's, it's narrower, right? Um, anything that occurs after those, those, product, those reproductive years is not something we're selecting for from an evolutionary standpoint. This energy constraint model is an evolutionary sort of holdover from a period of time where if we got too skinny, too lean, we would die of starvation or illness. Uh, and on the other hand, if we got too large, we would become prey because we'd be so immobile that we couldn't like run from predators. We have no predation it's risk now. Out there and fat dude and skinny dude in the forest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we have, we have no, there's no predators now. Right. Yeah. So, so what's happened now is that there's been this genetic drift towards a higher BMI higher levels of adiposity because we can, there's no predation risk, but that risk of starvation and illness is still, is, is still apparent. So we've had this genetic drift towards excess adiposity, but we're still holding on to this constrained energy expenditure model to, to, so that, so that we don't, you know, starve to death or lose too much weight and get uh, too, too thin and, and, and get ill during periods where we can't eat that much or won't eat that much. And so that's, that's what we're dealing with. Um, this isn't airtight. Dr. Pons will be the first one to say that he's the new paper just came out in the, uh, medicine and science and sports and exercise uh, medicine and science in sports and exercise journal. That's ACSM's journal where they effectively had people, um, exercise. I think it was 3000 met minutes per week, which is about double the current physical activity guidelines. And if they increased people's energy intake, so they ate more calories, their energy expenditure also went up. But the problem with the study is one, the way they measured energy expenditure wasn't terribly accurate. They also, it's a short-term study. So usually we see this compensation occur somewhere uh, you know, yes, it happens over time, but usually like the hard point is it, it's going to definitely happen at six months and greater. So it's like this, since the study was only done over a course of weeks, I don't really know that it goes against the constrained energy model, but Dr. Ponzer was an author on that article. So he's aware. I'm just saying that this isn't like perfectly airtight. We're going to learn more about this over the next, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But uh, I would definitely check out the podcast I did with Herman Ponzer. I would read his book, Burn. It's excellent. And then read some of his papers if any of this stuff kind of makes you scratch your head and you're like, what? Mind blown. Like, yeah, great, great read. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I want to just give a little bit of my input on this because on this is something that I've anecdotally definitely experienced. You know, like there's been times in my life where you know, I've definitely had like higher levels of physical activity and then other times what happens. And, you know, while there may be some difference in calorie, it's like, really not like a linear increase mm -hmm. and so when i remember i call i remember so uh, metal henselman's on steve hall's podcast survive stronger he was talking about this and he said that he's also had experiences with this where he would increase his cal his cardio by 100 calories a day nothing happened 
And every time you lower down Downs calories by 100, then something would happen with, with the scale, he would start losing fat. Um, and uh, something that he did say is that it's likely from low impact activity that you have most of these compensation patterns. So like, you know, from like, you know, aerobic training, you know, like more walking, stuff like, like that, right? like high intensity stuff. Um, it has more of a, it, it doesn't really have the same compensation effect from like the actual activity. Um, also you can't do as much high impact activity because of like, like fatigue as opposed to like, you know, like, you know, biking, you know, you can keep doing that. There's not the same buffering capacity, like, like, like limits with that. Sure. Um, so I think that the Benel, I actually commented on one of his posts about this. I said, it's like, what would you recommend for like somebody who say they had really high activity, like, you know, and they're showing some conversations with like meat, like how they regulate activity over, over time. If you were to lower down calories from like, somebody like that or lower down activity level, say somebody that was excessively physically, physically active, how long would it take for that to kind of come back to like the normal baseline or why to adapt? He's like, one, I think we relatively quickly and probably like, you know, this is like something to not really worry too much about. But the biggest take home is find and a level of exercise that you can regularly sustain and adhere to that is not overly stressful on your lifestyle. So you then control calories and modulate those accordingly to the goal in your own individual circumstances. But I will say like, you know, it's definitely something that is like kind of mind boggling is you're like, wait, you mean like, like, like if I walk like more, like I run more, like I'm not going to like always be burning more of a calorie. It's like, we yeah like it's the same yeah. thing while, while, while like whenever somebody's just just like should i lower down my calories on a rest day i'm like unless you're significantly less physically active which should not be the case probably not yep um, yeah certainly more complex than we think sure is, yep yeah so definitely we check out all those those resources um if you are guys are, are interested but i want to wrap these things up here and just thank jordan for this is his time um, I really, really enjoyed talking to you. I really look up to you guys, the barbell, barbell medicine, love what you guys are doing for the general fitness community. Um, so I guess, uh, where can people find you? Oh yeah, sure. So, uh, find me on Instagram is probably the place I'm most active. It's Jordan underscore barbell medicine or our main account barbell underscore medicine, uh, YouTube barbell medicine, Spotify, uh, or wherever you get your podcast from barbell medicine. And then our website, no surprise to anyone is the barbellmedicine.com. You head over there. Uh, we have a bunch of articles and resources and uh, you can contact us through the website as well. So really enjoyed have it, uh, you having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, great discussion. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much. And thank you guys for listening and I'll catch you guys in the next one. Have a great rest of your day wherever you are.